1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Hello, and welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. And today, we have a very special Christmas episode for... Steph, do you see that? You see that oh, reindeer over that? there with the red eyes? And it's walking on its hind legs. Do you see that? Yeah, I can't unsee it. Maybe just hide over here for a second. Oh. Shh, 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 shh. No, you shush. You, you shush. Hey, yeah, now you two, you're just the two I was looking for. Hi, hi. Hi, hi, how are you? I, I'm Russell. I'm Stephanie. Who, who are you? Well, I'm the demon reindeer, of course. <laughs> what did you think when you saw my 18 eyes and my burning fur? And my red, red, dark, red blood nose. I don't know. Can I ask you a question? You guys are. You guys are cool, right? You're like artists. You're cool. A little bit. Yeah, we're cool. I would would say so. I mean, we're not too cool. Okay. Okay. Uh, So, you know, you're you're cool with Satan instead of uh, Santa. Yeah, um... I'm not, like, crazy for Christmas. We're not... We're not Christmas people, per se. We're not, like, for Christmas. It's a little bit too capitalistic and... A little bit. Great, perfect. Well, well, I don't know if you noticed, um, it's a little bit embarrassing, but, uh, my... My fur is starting to to smolder a little bit. Well, we didn't well, yeah, want to mention it. We didn't want to mention it, but... Well, no, it's, a, it's, it's a great shame. But uh, every time around Christmas, stop paying attention to OS demons, and they start paying attention to elves and Santas and reindeer. But not demon reindeer. We're powered by uh, belief in us, the, the magical belief in demon reindeer. I guess what I'm asking is... You'll cover two mini-possessed artworks tonight, um, so I can have enough energy to make it back safe and sound uh, to the North Pole, where where I live with my demon reindeer family. I guess I'm not totally clear on how that helps you, but Steph, I mean... I think that's something we, we can, can do. We can do that. Yeah, I mean, we were about sure. to do that anyway. It wasn't going to be a... It's kind of last minute and all, but, but, minute, but we can we can do that. Okay, okay. Well, it sounds really entertaining if I'm being honest with you. Just whatever you do, you know, try and uh, make it spooky, spook it up. Uh, uh, try to scare your listeners so that I, I have enough power to get home. So it's like it's like fuel. It's like spooky fuel. Uh, so so Texas, when you get there, we don't want to stay up worrying. Oh, yes, of course. I'll give you a text once I made it back to the North Pole. I don't want you guys worrying. So the North Pole, huh? I wouldn't have expected that. Where did you think we were from? Uh, south of the equator? No. Uh, as you would surmise with our burning fur, uh, we really prefer to live somewhere nice and cold. You know, honestly, Demon Reindeer, you have been a delight. But we should... Get back to it. Yeah. Uh, please get please back to it. Oh, right. oh, and before I go, I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Would you Would you all like some hot cocoa? It's an old family recipe. Yes, that sounds lovely. That Thank sounds great. You. I would love some hot cocoa. Oh, that smells good. Bye. Bye, Demon Reindeer. Bye.
Okay, so first up in our double feature, we will be discussing Edvard Munch's pastel, tempera, and oil paint on cardboard piece called... What the hell was that? Um... Oh, I, I didn't cut I had something cut out here on my in my headphones. Uh, wh- what was the piece we're talking about today? Today we're talking about the. Sp- oh! Oh! oh my god! What is happening? I'm sorry. There's uh, I'm getting some interference on in my headphones. Do you think I, one more time? I swear, this is the last time. You <laughs> no, this is t- the last time. I yeah. swear. Edward Munch's yeah the painting screen. entitled <laughs> the screen. But, but... <laughs> Why? I'm feeling a combination of things right now, Russell. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am so confused. I can't make well, what I am and what I'm not. You never know what's behind that door. Is it a scream? You know what? There's there. nothing I can do. Or I'm underneath the table. It it's just going to happen. What about there? No, that's too. That's just too many. Oh, okay. But there's one. Too many. <laughs> then we're going to talk about the okay. piece. All right. All right. So the piece by Edward Munch that we will be discussing today is... What? It it is what? The scream. It's called the scream. Okay. Cool. I don't know what why are you give me that look. Well, I'm so, I have a little bit of PTSD because from the scream noises. Uh-huh, from <laughs> Edvard Munch was born in 1863 in Norway. He uh was from a big family. He was one of five kids. Um unfortunately, his childhood was plagued with trauma. Munch's mother and his sister died of tuberculosis. His father was diagnosed with depression and his sister, one of his other sisters, was diagnosed with schizophrenia at a really young age. Poor little uh, Edvard lived in constant fear and anxiety of also inheriting this mental illness. Understandably, Munch was terrified that he would be next. He did get sick a lot, actually, though, just physically sick. Like, maybe he had a cold all the time. But anyway, he was uh, forced to stay home from school, and he had a lot of time to kill. So he started drawing. His creativity flourished. Tapped into that creative side. Mm -hmm. By candlelight and in dark, dark Norway. I was ready to say no, but actually, you might be right. Yeah. Maybe. I might be. So, yes, he finds his creative side, but he grows up, and when he goes to college, he decides to study engineering. Okay. Not painting. Now, Steph, in this day and time in Norway, I was under the assumption that it was mostly a pitchfork-based <laughs> society. Were you now? Yeah. So, I, I assumed that you would buy and trade pitchforks for goods and services. Instead of having, like, money? Yeah, no, they're pitch... Yeah, you open that up your wallet the and there's a pitchfork. A little pitchfork? A tiny pitchfork? Yeah, of course there's different sizes How of pitchforks. Your what, you're going to get a Coca-Cola with a full-size pitchfork? No, you need a mini pitchfork for that Coca-Cola. Otherwise, you're, you're paying way too much for that Coca-Cola. <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, in his engineering courses, like, was he like a revolutionary? Did he put like a, maybe like a webbed toe between the three pitched forks? Maybe that's kind of like a, an, an early shovel. Maybe. Okay. Go on. Go I'm on. I'm sorry. Pro- I'm just. I'm maybe just... not because if he had, we would have heard about it, but maybe somebody stole it and then patented it. And you know what? Actually, that is a very good theory because he actually drops out of school after a year to become a painter. So maybe that's why somebody stole his invention. Munch goes to art school and he starts to live the bohemian life, but he secretly keeps a small pitchfork in his pocket, though, just to remember the old times. The bohemian life is a relatively new thing uh, right now for Edward in, in his lifetime. It's basically a hippie. He's living frugally, less attached to material goods. He he wants to focus on his art. And he actually wrote his um, his goal in his diary. And I have, a, I have a little quote here. Quote, in my art, I attempt to explain life and its meaning to myself. End quote. Interesting. I like that. It's for him. It's yeah, not for he's anyone else. Figure out life's mystery through, through painting. The, the visual language of painting. Love it. He graduates from art school and he's living the artist's life. He has a studio practice. He's painting, experimenting, trying to figure out what he's trying to say and how he's trying to say it. So eventually, Munch has his first solo show. A one Munch show. Not a two Munch show. <laughs> One Munch. A one Munch show. One Munch. Three Munchs? Don't too even many? think about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's too, too many Munchs. Okay. So he receives a lot of recognition from the show, and he gets a two-year scholarship to study in Paris. What do you know about Paris? What do I know about Paris? Yeah. At, Baguettes. At this time. Baguettes? Yep. 
All right, well, it's part of the story, I guess. Moon goes to Paris. He is in the center of the art world. He is loving and living for those baguettes, mm. croissants, crepes, mm. uh, loving the lights. So he just is walking down the street and it's raining and all the beautiful reflections on the cobblestone streets is just lovely. Ooh. And he stumbles upon all of these modern artists. Work. Okay. You may have heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So there was mm, Vincent Van Gogh, Paul Cezanne, Paul Gauguin, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. Yeah, um, the bad boys of post-impressionism. Oh, so painting. you have heard yeah. of them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they weren't technically a group. They were like a K-pop band <laughs> that uh, disbanded immediately. So he was inspired by these post-impressionists because of their use of color to convey emotion. Okay, Seth, so we'll put a pin in this and maybe come back to it later. But the post-impressionists, they were very, they, they were post-impressionists. So who were the impressionists? The impressionists were a <laughs> rebellious group of French painters. Ooh, la la, wee oui, wee. Oui. No, no, no. I don't know because they're rebellious, right? They're not yeah. like going to be singing la la. Um, anyway, rebellious French painters who wanted to go against the the standards of painting. They didn't mm. want to be told what to paint or how to paint it. So they were like, screw you, mom. <laughs> their focus, the Impressionist focus, was to paint outdoors and to paint simple everyday scenes. That's right. And they could do that because if you remember, listeners, oil paint, you used to have to mix on your own, but all of a sudden these little tin tubes came out. You could take oil outdoors with you. Pre-mixed. Yeah, pre-mixed, ready to go in these little toothpaste tubes. So you're not chained to your studio. You can paint outside any time of day or night. So Steve Paint Tube, he shows up and he's like, hey, I'm going to disrupt the industry. (laughs) Uh, Look at this. It's my invention right here. It's going to revolutionize the painting industry. This is a tube for it's the it's the it's the it's the Steve tube the Steve tube of paint. He's got all the lingo that these yeah. startups are using. Yeah. Did he have a top hat? Steve, as was the custom at this time. Steve paint tube did not have a top hat. He was a revolutionary. Did he have blue jeans? You know he had blue jeans. I, they weren't invented yet. How he had blue I jeans and a little and a little like black turtleneck. Steve paint tube. So they're painting outside. They call that en plein air. So their focus is capturing light. So the effect light has on objects and fleeting moments. So the haystacks. They got that haystack feeling. They, if you'll remember yep. that from episode one. Yep. It's all coming together. You can paint a haystack any time of day and paint its shadows, all the different colors that it has, actually, if you really study it. Now, the post-impressionists that came after them about 30 years or so, we're like, hey, we like what you're doing, Impressionists, but But we're a little bit more badass. We're like Fugazi. (laughs) We need to turn up the volume on this saturation. We're going to include some uh, reggae rhythms in our punk. And on top of all that, they were less interested in depicting real life, which is what the Impressionists wanted to do. They're like, no, we want to talk about the feelings. We want to paint the feelings. They want to get emo about it. They want to get into their emotions. They want to get in touch with their sensitive side. So their imagery they depicted on the canvas also conveyed an emotion. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Emotional beings, and they wanted to express that. And now, here we are with Munk. He is inspired by these uh, post-impressionists. He says, yes, I want that color because I need to express all of my emotions. Mm. But he takes it to the next level. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my. So... He starts to use his brushstrokes to distort the space that the figures are in, to oh. distort the composition. So la la. taking the brushwork to an extreme. Yeah, so it sounds like he's starting to build a psychological space. Yes, exactly. So one that is has that haystack feeling, that fuzzy haystack feeling, but maybe has some emotion specifically added to it. It's a feeling that he is specifically writing. Yes, he was trying to express what was on the inside. Like guts and stuff? No. Like no. someone's like a like a scary Krampus is running after you with a pitchfork and he stabs open your belly and he's 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 looking at the guts, he starts pulling out the guts, he's pulling out the guts, there's so many guts, and then and then he's just like he's wearing the guts, he's wearing the guts like a little scarf around his neck to, to, to like keep you warm Stop. in the Norway winters. Like a scarf. You know, like a little scarf. I you keep saying that. Like a scarf, babe, not, a cute little scarf. It's, it's cold cute. in Norway. It's a little gross. scarf. Okay. Moving on. Moonk has found his voice. He wants to use this highly saturated color, artificial color, 
and he wants to use these distorted forms and broad gestural marks to convey emotion. So these are all characteristics of this art movement that we're going to call Expressionism. If you search Expressionism on the internet, this painting we're about to talk about, The Scream. Oh. Oh, Oh my gosh. So imagine there was a scream. Yeah, I use... mm -hmm. Damn it. This is the poster child of Expressionism, but also, as we will get into, human angst, human emotion, anxiety, terror, fear... I mean, the poor guy has been through a lot. Uh, Just in his childhood alone, I can imagine he would have a lot of uh, things to work through. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) seems like it. Hey, this painting style isn't cutting it. This one isn't. Didn't have enough pitchforks to pay for a uh, therapist. We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Russell, why don't you take us to the narrative? Let's go. In front of us is a dreary day, the light of the sky a muddy peach and greenish gray that barely contrast one another. The dreariness is broken only by the color of the setting sun, which if not for some breaks in the clouded sky above, would go mostly unnoticed. Instead, brilliant crayon reds, teals, and oranges break up the monotonous low contrast, illuminating the sky and the blue waves below. But while seemingly peaceful, the sky meets the waves in an unholy chemical reaction. At first, the sky and the waves keep their horizontal hold, but quickly they tilt, they twist, and crash against a rigid bridge on which three figures cross. Two of the figures continue to walk along, their conversation unbroken by the disaster forming all around them. The third figure is left behind and seems to steady themselves against the railing of the bridge, which is perhaps the wrong decision to make. The figure's skin is the color of the dreary day. They are quickly losing all of their discernible features, including their gender, their hair color, their eye color, and they begin to seem almost alien-like in appearance. With the third figure realizing what is beginning to happen the whole scene becomes anxious and we can sense the figures, blood vessels constricting, their heart racing and their palms becoming cold and clammy. Meanwhile, the weather of the organic world around embodies the central figure and their body too begins to sway with the waves of the bay and the stratus of the sky, breaking the contain of the rigid structured bridge which, compositionally speaking, seem to be keeping the two worlds separate. The figure grasps for air, their cry for help seemingly muted, and presses their hands over their ears, as if to keep the scream of the organic world around them out of their body. But it's far too late. We are left wondering if this is the moment before the bridge and the man-made structures of the city are too infected with the scream, and begin to like the figure buckle and bend with the rhythm of the screen. And here we are, folks. We are now in the Critique Christmas Dungeon um, (laughs) where demon reindeer are surrounding the screen. We have it locked up. We have our pitchforks ready. Uh, the city folk are tired. They have grown tired and they they are ready to revolt. And we will decide whether the scream is a good painting. <laughs> wow. I don't know where I was going with that narrative. Where no, where did I go? No, I, where I started these, somewhere. Where all these reindeer and pitchforks come from? Well, you know. That's what I want to know. So The Scream is from 1893. It's pastel, tempera, and oil paint on... Stephanie. Car- yes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> what? I... I hear a pantry opening. Is it creaky? Does it need to it's be oiled? Creaky. I think you might need to put tempera... In the art pantry. Just real fast. We got a lot to cover today. All right. So tempera is a form of painting. You mix pigment? Yes. You have pigment and you mix that with egg yolks. Instead of oil. Yeah. So you mix that together and it shows up matte and it's it dries quickly. Well, thank you for that art pantry quickie. Here is a quote from Munk regarding the inspiration for the scream. Quote, 
I was walking along the road with two friends. The sun was setting. Suddenly, the sky turned blood red. I paused, feeling exhausted, and leaned on the fence. There was blood and tongues of fire above the blue-black fjord and the city. My friends walked on, and I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. Getting into the composition, you first notice bold strokes of red and orange, a.k.a. the tongues of fire. Which are the clouds above. And then you look down to see a screaming face because that's all it is. You just look at you just I mean, I don't even say it's a face. You just see you see eyes, nose, mouth. It looks like a round (laughs) emoji head. Like it has no discernible features. It could be any gender. It could be any color. It could You don't know. And then you notice the figure is on a bridge above a body of water. You see two people in the background. Uh, Witnesses, you might call them. They're further down the bridge on the left. By the way that their legs are gesturing outwards, I believe they are walking away from their friend there. And if I just real fast, if I could say something about this, this horrible, horrible face uh, that this this screaming person is making. At first, it's like kind of funny, right? It is like an emoji or something. (laughs) No. Um, But then as you look at it, it's real. It is really actually kind of disturbing (laughs) um just the fact that it has like no discernible features it has no hair it has you know it's just oh god so on the right of the figure is this swath of land and the brush marks that make that up lead you back to the sky back yeah they're they're more of a gestural which is a new word so that means like you're arm is moving in like a not a rigid way it's so imagine making like an over exaggerated s with your arm um that is (laughs) gestural like your arm's a snake a slithery snake yes and the shape of the composition the, the outline of the composition leads you back and around so up the right over the sky and then diagonally towards the figure back again yeah it starts to melt the ocean starts to meld with the sky a little bit which adds to the panic forming around the figure it's very emotional i think when you're just anxious or worried about Mm -hmm. something you're so focused on that you're so worried about that thing whatever it is that everything around you kind of becomes blurry kind of blurs in your periphery and you can't really see it anyway because you're so busy just focused on this one thing so there's this structured bridge right and it's it's very rigid instead of making the big s gesture with your arm you'd make a very straight line so behind that bridge are you know like stephanie was saying there are the mountains there are the clouds there's that organic gestural curvy representation of the sky and the waves um they're sort of pulsating they feel like Mm. so you have this balance and it's almost like a yin and a yang effect and i don't mean that in the in the sort of actual like meaning of yin and yang right but there is like one half of the composition that is structural and feels very man-made like a bridge and there's another half of the composition that feels very organic And it feels like they are colliding with one another. So yin and yang is balance, right? It's all about that balance between those two, like the earth and the sky, the black and the white. This really feels like that balance is starting to come undone. And I think that is like that emotional response that we're having. Yes, that's a good point. Because the only straight lines in the composition are the bridge and the figures. The figures are very rigid, yeah. They, they almost feel like they're robotic in a way. Kind so it's kind of like the man-made is is the foundation for yeah. us in this composition. It's what's keeping everything from falling apart. So it's the, it is the panic attack. It's that panic swooping in. You're looking at the life around you and you're like, oh, no, but this is reality. I'm still here, but I still feel this sense of panic. So he should use the bridge to steady himself. Yeah. I so mean, he steadies some, himself, yeah. but that is where the two, the yin and the yang, are colliding and infecting one another. Compositionally speaking, I think that's interesting. I agree. So, Steph, how do you feel about the piece? Do you like it? Do you do you like the the materials he's using? Do you like the way he's painting? Do you like the composition? Do you like it? Check yes or no. Do you that like it? That is a complicated question of which I'm only provided with two possible answers. Well, you can write in your own answer if you want to. N-A. N-A? Not applicable. I just... This painting just makes me feel so many emotions, which is the whole point. I empathize with this figure. You empathize so with the I feeling the figure is having. Yes. So in that regard, I think he was successful. You think he was successful in conveying that emotion. Agreed. Okay. I like the composition. As I mentioned earlier, I, I think he did a really good job with the ratio of the sky, the land, the figures, the bridge, all of that. I think that's very compelling. Okay. How do you feel about how he, he handled the paint then? Do you feel like it's well done? Mm. 
<laughs> I feel like I'm leading you. I'm, le- I'm leading you. My pitchfork is raising slightly, but I'm trying to keep it behind my back. Uh, there's improvement. There is room for improvement. There's a room for improvement. Interesting, he's, interesting, interesting. He's, okay. We're going to get technical here. He's using three kinds of mediums that require a very important first step that I think he skipped, and it's showing. What is that step, stuff? That is priming your surface. Oh, back to episode two, your canvas, priming your surface. Surface, yeah. So he's painting on cardboard. You're saying that cardboard is showing through, you think? I can tell he painted on cardboard, and that's not a good thing. That's interesting. (laughs) That is something that I actually find very charming about the piece. But really? go on, go on. Okay, it's funny because he's he's inspired by the post-impressionist color, mm-hmm. use of color, the, the vibrancy of it, yet he didn't prime his surface. This is interesting because this is showing up again. Uh, you didn't like the Martin Wong piece because it wasn't very colorful and you thought it was the colors were a little too muddy. Are you saying his colors are a little bit too muddy or that, what are you saying exactly? Say it's, it's, it's not... It's best. Edward Munch, you can do better. Well, I think there's a two-edged sword here, right? There's a two-edged pitchfork here. Um, (laughs) A lot of the anxiety and the sort of tension that is coming into play in this piece is precisely because he is painting on cardboard. He seems to be, you know, just quickly putting those gestures in and uh, making this really hideous screaming figure, right? I think all of that is backed up by the way that he is handling his materials. That's my opinion. He's handling them in a way that could be read as a little bit naive. Naive in the Mm. sense that, um, you know, it just kind of has that very like crayon sort of quick drawing sort of naive. I don't I'm not a skilled, educated painter feeling to it. No, I wouldn't say it's naive of him. I think see, I empathize with Munch if if in fact he was trying to quickly express such an emotion that was right. so overcoming him that he did not have time to prime. But you just wanted him to prime instead of... I wanted him to do it again and prime this time. Prime this time. You gotta get your prime Not membership. Amazon Prime. Yeah, not that. No, don't do that. So, no, I I understand when if when you're having a moment, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, and you're like, I gotta get this down on paper. It's mm-hmm. It might be posted. It might be pencil on a post-it. But it seemed he did mm. not have the surface ready. Yeah. He had the, he had the pastel ready. He had the oil ready. He had the tempera ready, which actually you don't yep. have tempera ready, which is now that I'm saying this, I'm thinking, well, why didn't you prime? It takes some time to prepare tempera. I've done yep. it before. That's why I know. And you are clicking into exactly what I don't like about this piece. Oh, You're shoot. on it. Uh, my pitchfork is up. My pitchfork is loaded. I'm about to throw it at this painting because let's ignore the fact that he did Harsh. several versions of this painting. So that, to me, gets rid of that argument that this was just some emotion that he had to get out. This may be the first one. Right. There are several versions there of it. There are several this. versions of it, but it does feel like he jotted this down on a piece of paper and then tried to recreate that emotion on the canvas or on the cardboard. He's faking it? I feel like... He's faking I it? I feel like the sort of emotion is gone from this. This is like one of 50 studies maybe he was trying to recapture He's trying to recapture that, that magic. It just wasn't that there that He's like night. reliving it over and over for him, but apparently it's not doing it for, for you. Just It's really just the yang part, the top of the composition, like the, the, the swirling part. It's just so unconvincing. Like the, the, the sort of gestural marks feel very contained, whereas I want them to break free. Oh, so he's like fearing the border. Yeah, he's that, he's paying attention to the, the border. Edge. Yeah, he's aware of the edge of the composition. Yeah. yeah, and and so like I was saying, that gestural S that you make with your uh-huh. arm. Imagine now, everyone do this at home. Make a gestural S with your arm as far as you can, and then try to confine that gestural S to a you know an A four piece of paper. And that is going to be harder to do. You're not going to get that gestural sort of markdown as well because you're confined to these borders. The confined nature of it goes against the whole feeling of this that composition. That's a great point. Now, now that you've said that, now yeah. I see it. I'm also poisoned by the fact that I know Munch's work and I know that he's you're a, poisoned. I'm poisoned by it because I know Munch's work and I know that he's a better painter than this. And he's doing this on purpose. And so I think the thing that is the most charming aspect of it, like I said, is the fact that it's on cardboard and the fact that the tones are muted. I think that really aids the composition. Okay. It really makes it spookier. It makes it muddier. I see. It More muddies ghostly. the water. Yeah. It, it's doing, that is ironically doing for him what I think he wants those two sort of worlds colliding to do. But, but it's not because it was yeah, intentional. <laughs> exactly. Dang. So how do you feel? Um, I appreciate its place in art history. It's not my favorite. I would not put it on my wall. 
I would not steal it from the museum as it has been stolen in the past. I, that would not be me. Check it out. We stole the scream. Put that away. It creeps me out. It's I mean, it's iconic. Everyone knows it. It is like I mentioned yeah. before. It's, it's the poster child of expressionism. Like It is just as famous as Starry Night by Van Gogh. So when we uh, start our own art slice museum that's free and open for everybody and, and uh, has free snacks available at the door. Are we taking this piece? Yes. Because of the feeling it conveys to the viewer, the audience, look look at what it's done to pop culture. Okay. No, it's not like that pretty to look at, but I think that alone is important. It's also the first of its kind. Like I said, like I said its it place is, in art it history is, is it so is. important. It is. There will never, there has not been another one like it. Yeah. I mean... This one is important because of when it happened. I mean, he okay. did make like six other ones. Like I know. And that's like, a, <laughs> we'll talk about that because that's also <laughs> interesting. But can we just talk about some of the things that has been inspired by it in popular culture? Okay. Like an emoji? What else? Yeah. Okay. The emoji we've talked about multiple times. Um, the ghost face killer from Scream, the Scream yep, franchise. Wu-Tang Clan. Is that, where, is that where they got their name? Ghostface killer? That's, I didn't know that was the same thing. Okay. So yes. Home Alone. Kevin McAllister's... Home Alone is based Kevin on? Kevin McAllister's face oh. on the cover. That is from the Scream. Okay. I didn't know that. And, I mean, I'm sure you know this. Scream has showed up several times in The Simpsons. Of course. So, yes, I would take it. I would take it. It's it's important. I think it would go in the historic wing of the Art Slice Museum. Not necessarily, like, the work that we like. Because I do think it is We just have the plaque, piece. but not the work. Right. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Sorry. I do, and well, you know, it might have been stolen. Um, I do think that it is an important piece, but I think this is where it's okay to dislike work as long as you know why you dislike it. Mook has some amazing paintings that I think convey these feelings even better. So there's this painting called Separation that I think has that sort of anxious feeling to it. There's this painting called The Dance of Life that also captures the weird sort of feeling that you might have if you're having like a panic attack or if you're just having like even just general like social anxiety. He does tap into some really interesting, emotional, expressive pieces. I'm not arguing Monk's place in art history. I do think he's important. Okay. What Fair do you enough. think? What's your final judgment? Your final pitchfork? Uh, I don't like it. You don't? No. No, I don't like it. I hate saying that. Yeah, feel, it feels I weird, feel, right? I feel Apart from the history. For, I know, but I'm about the history. The though. history is interesting. No one's denying that. The history is Gosh, certainly interesting. I don't like it. Oh, uh, Stephanie is making a screaming face. It's kind of scary. All right, well, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with you. So, Steph, who are we talking about next in this creepy, creepy Christmas double feature? The next piece we're going to talk about is by an artist that is not that well known. And her work is much more meticulous than Munch's. However, she does not depict reality as it is either. She uses her imagination. I'm listening. So the name of the artist we're going to talk about today is Maria de los Remedios Alicia Rodriga Varo y Uranga. Of course. Yeah. Um, the orange lady. The oranges. Uranga? Yeah. You think I'm saying Oranga, which is orange in Spanish? Is yes. that what you think that's? The orange lady. From uh, from the history books, of course. Okay, so you've heard of her. Uh, yeah. Oh, even though she, she went by Remedios Barro? Yeah, I mean, I knew I, I knew that. Okay, all well, right. Sure, of course I did. But that does make more sense. One of my faves. Okay, great. I, I just didn't know her name was that long. And I crazy think, long. Or I, or I forgot. Yeah, it's crazy long. Yeah. The piece we're going to be discussing today is called A Disturbing Presence from 1959, a painting that is oil on canvas. But first, let's go to the narrative. And as a reminder, everyone, you can see all the images we talk about today on our Instagram page or our website at artslicepod.com. As a viewer, we find ourselves in a single room that feels like one of many rooms in a larger labyrinth. This room with emerald green walls is dimly lit by an incandescent light. The floor seems as confused as the labyrinth structure with tile patterns overlapping in perspective skewed grids that if not for their dark color would feel like you were stepping into a bizarre funhouse. 
The dim light in the room is emanating from a glowing woman who would not look out of place in a phantasmal late 1970s Japanese anime series. She is seated directly in front of us, the focal point of the composition. Her chair is throne-like, high-backed, pattern-adorned, and very regal. She has pulled towards her a small, golden, wooden, V-framed table where we find her diligently working. With the care of an artist or a scientist, she peels back the wooden, golden flesh of the table. The wood grain, as if remembering its former life as a tree, grows organic nerves, skywards, and long roots that hit the floor and travel out the many labyrinthian doorways in search of soil. The chair, as if activated by a totally different magic than the one that our central figure has, throws off the shape of its patterns towards the ground like a ship's anchor. The chair backing rips open to reveal a smooth face. The disturbing presence emerges from that tear and outstretches its tongue, reaching for the spine on the woman's neck. All right, beautifully read, Russell. Thank you so much. Often in Varro's paintings, the main figure is at a table, either creating or harnessing energy from within themselves or from within the environment. The central figures in her work are often very witchy. There is this weird pseudoscience that's happening, this imaginative science that's happening. Yes, that or the figure is traveling or in motion, like a pilgrim on a journey, perhaps. Yeah, a lot of her characters are pilgrims on journeys Mm. or they're, like I said before, in their weird pseudoscience labs. Mm. Or instead of just having one one figure, there are many figures working together, building something very beautiful in these like dismal, sparse spaces. So you said character instead of figure. Why is that? Do you even know why you said that? (laughs) Now that I'm thinking about it, her work, it seems like it's telling a story. It doesn't seem like it is a portrait of someone who exists. It's more like a a story in a novel. Like a comic book, maybe? Yeah, or a character in a comic book, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's like, (laughs) it's a scene of a larger narrative, a larger story. Exactly. I think a lot of her work, too, though, seems to have autobiographical themes. I would absolutely agree with that. I feel like in most of her work, there's a central figure who is this empowered female figure, or at least ambiguously gendered figure. Right, yeah. They are androgynous sometimes, but a lot of the time, though, they do look like her, which is why I think it's autobiographical. She seems to be drawing inspiration from her own life. That would make a lot of sense to me because writers often, even if they're you know telling a a fictional story might use inspiration from their own lives like little stories here and there to craft a larger narrative i feel like that's maybe what varo is doing here yes she absolutely lived quite the interesting life it was very eventful and that was probably enough fuel for her to paint so she spent a lot of her life moving around relocating when she was a child it was all around spain and north africa her family had to keep moving because of her dad's job when she was older though she was chasing creative opportunities that took her uh, from city to city country to country so she moved from madrid spain to paris and then to barcelona and then back to paris But eventually she ends up in Mexico. And that was probably because she was escaping fascist dictators. A lot of her paintings, like I mentioned before, seem to be set in these, if not fantastical environments, then these interior spaces that are very, very sparse. There's nothing on the walls to make you feel like it's this character's home. It it, it feels like it's a temporal space that they're living in for a short period of time. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because in this piece, the only furniture is the chair she's sitting on and the desk she's working on. So why even bother putting up your favorite painting or... Getting a couch. Getting a couch that you're going to love. Going to Ikea. Basically. Yeah. One you have to put together yourself especially. Yeah, I mean, if you're just going to move from fascist dictator country to fascist dictator country, um, what is the point of putting together uh, some furniture? Exactly. There weren't like passenger airplanes back then. How did how did they move? Did they get on a ship? Well, 
when you live in Europe, even back then, it's really easy to travel from country, country to country. But when she was escaping the fascists, she did have to cross the ocean. She eventually settles in Mexico, but she had to take a, a ship. Oh, like a, a you think it was like a cruise ship? It was, it was definitely not a cruise ship. Gross. We're escaping a fascist dictator. Limbo. Like that? Limbo, uh, limbo, limbo. Uh, no? Let's talk about what the female figure is doing in this composition. It seems she's trying to grow this plant slash tree. Uh, not sure what it is. It's quite young. Yeah, it is a tree or a plant, but it also looks like a nervous system. There is this pestering demon coming up out of her chair who is bothering her. First of all, its face has bust through the chair upholstery, probably ruined her favorite chair, her only chair, looks like. Annoying. That's all right. She'll get a new one at the next town she moves to. If she can afford it. She spent all her money on this chair. This is a very a nice ornate chair. chair. She had to wonder why she got it for like $1.25. <laughs> it was a possessed chair. Yeah, the guy was like, $1.25, please. <laughs> please just take it. And then uh, she buys it. She hauls it away and she can hear him in the back. I'm free. I'm finally free. This is a movie premise. We better sell the rights to this right. horror movie word talking out so Steph have you ever been uh by yourself in the house and just felt like you know like someone is watching me or you get that feeling like spine tingly feeling yeah the character has that feeling like she doesn't seem super aware that the chair has ripped open and a face is coming towards her with an outstretched tongue I disagree with that I feel like she's very aware and she's just like what the hell like I feel like she's just so tired She's just been running around. She's just trying to nurture this little plant. And she's just like, not again. Like, what now? Like a tired mother. Kid just tugging at her shirt. And she's just like, what now? Yeah. What now, baby? I can kind of relate to how she's feeling. She's getting interrupted all the time. So she's harnessing. So, yeah, you know, she just keeps getting interrupted when she's trying to make this beautiful creation. I know. She's spending so much time on. She is. She's she's using all of her energy to, mm-hmm. to try and nurture this this little thing. And she just keeps getting interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So she's harnessing Because, this you know, it's sometimes, you know, you're really focused. And when someone just chimes in and just really says stuff that doesn't even really add to the conversation at all, annoying the, the person creating and potentially anybody listening. Kind of like wind chimes. Yeah. You know, like wind they sound chimes, pretty exactly. for a second, and then you wish they'd just shut up. Yeah, and then you're just like, "Why did I buy these wind chimes?" Okay, all right. Are you are you are you good? I'm fine. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay. So because she's... if she was getting interrupted all the time, Stop. I would just think that what? Stop. Am I interrupting you? Yes. Oh, I love you so much, but I really would love to keep talking about this. Oh, thing. I'm sorry. I thought I was adding to the conversation. You are adding to it. Okay. You're adding a lot of wind chimes. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So because she- we have that kind of relationship <laughs> where I, I feel like if I was interrupting you, you could just say so. I thought I did. I you did, could just say so. Like, I'm I- not, you know, I'm not, just tell me. She's harnessing. <laughs> See, now I'm like waiting for it. She's harnessing energy from within herself and seemingly transferring it to the plant. And it's just trying to thrive. It's just trying to live its life. You know, it's funny. It looks like our Monstera plant when the roots have grown out and they're looking for more soil, but we're not like changing the pot anytime soon. It's like a little arm reaching out to like (laughs) grab our attention. It's the hardwood floor. It's like, oh, I thought there would be soil here. Yeah, the roots have grown. They've left the room. They've left the vicinity down a twisty corridor and up a dark staircase. I also find it funny that there's like two doorways there. So it could be like one is leading to like Europe and the other one is leading to North America where she ends up in Mexico. Possibly. We can read into this knowing what we know about her life, about how she moved around so much. She had to find all these different places to live. It kind of feels like she's trying to put down roots too. Yes, uh, since she spent her life relocating, chasing things, running away from things. She's looking to to put down some roots. And it actually does something compositionally as well. Like your eyes follow them out of the room, but they all you could also follow them into the room if you wanted to, to the like the glowing woman once again, the central figure. That leads back to the table and the chair. Yeah, that chair I think could also be like a metaphor for a crappy friend or partner or a loved one. It's supposed to be supportive and instead of being supportive, they are preventing you from growing. They are stunting your mm, growth. That's a good point. So like toxic friends or family member, whatever, toxic people in your life. Maybe I'm reading too much into it at this point, but I'm just like, this is a cool looking chair. It looks comfortable. 
and unfortunately it's possessed like that sucks because now you can't use this chair well you can't go to those um demon uh flea markets flea markets (laughs) nope all right so back to the figure she is the brightest part of the composition she seems to be emanating light like she she's glowing she is like positively glowing remedios was very interested in like science and witchiness and even alchemy wouldn't you say (laughs) she's interested in witchiness the science of being witchy she was interested in alchemy but also the occult mysticism and spirituality so she was very witchy indeed very very witchy she was a leftist. Varro's political views were considered radical at the time. So that's one of the reasons she had to leave Europe. She was associated with her husband, Benjamin Pere, a French surrealist poet who was an outspoken communist. She is, a, at the very least, communist adjacent. Probably. If she's not an out and proud communist, she's probably like at least a socialist. Comrade Light. <laughs> She was in support of the Republican Spain, so that was against the fascist dictator Franco. So she would have been executed had she returned to Spain from Paris. But while in Paris, because of her connection with her husband, the outspoken communist, uh, she was arrested. Oh. Yes, and that was extremely traumatizing for her. But worse would have happened probably if she had stayed in Paris because she was also a foreigner and an artist. Back to the painting. So this painting is very meticulously and carefully rendered. Her dad taught her how to draw architecturally and in a technical manner. Mm. That makes a lot of sense with her work. I mean, her work is very technical. Some of them have like a very machine sort of feel to them. Exactly. Uh, Her dad was a hydraulic engineer. So it's interesting to compare her painting style to, to Munch whose mark making was more gestural and broad. He was more free. His brush strokes or his pastel marks, they would show up on the composition, right? Whereas Remedios here, she is painting much like we talked about with Martin Wong. Um, She's painting in a way that's much more illustrative. So you don't see a lot of brush strokes. Yes, they are on opposite ends of the formal spectrum, if you will, but their subject matter is very similar. Mm -hmm. They're both trying to convey a feeling. Right. With Monk, like he is trying to recreate the feeling of a, an emotional experience. Whereas with Remedios, she is illustrating that as yes. like a narrative. She's telling the story as like a fictional narrative, let's say. Yes, that is very well said. And that is a characteristic of magic realism. So magic realism is when you are depicting an imaginary narrative or space, but you're doing it in a realistic manner. You're painting what's outside your window. You are hyper aware of all the all the details in this reality that you as an artist have created. Yes, all the dust, all the sunshine, all the light. But I always thought Remedios Varro was a surrealist painter, considered a surrealist painter. Yes, that's true. The surrealist focus was on the unconscious and dreams. For her, I think it was more more of her reality. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I feel for her, it's more autobiographical. I don't think she dreamt a lot of her compositions. I think she she imagined them. Yeah, well, I would argue the surrealist <laughs> did that as well, but they probably weren't as honest about it. But I get what you're saying. So surrealism originated in in Europe, mm-hmm. in Paris. So it was like considered to be a French thing. Magic realism originated in Latin America. So we're talking about Mexico at this point. So I would say she straddled both worlds. She's gotcha. probably a little bit of both. She was one of the few female artists that were acknowledged by the surrealists, which were Pretty much a boys club. So much like she was communist adjacent, she was surrealist adjacent. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. that's that's <laughs> that's good. Yes, uh, she was obviously talented in her own right. We know we know this, uh, but they probably let her in because her husband was Benjamin Pere. Hey, uh, she also hey boys, <laughs> she's with me. <laughs> so she also may have known Dali. They went to the same art school in Madrid, so they may have brushed elbows. That may have helped. It's such a bummer that she is not mentioned anywhere in their list of alumni. Not on their own page, not on the Wikipedia page. It's just kind of sad that she's been overlooked in history. Probably because she lived her life like her male contemporaries. She had several husbands. Um, She definitely... Several husbands? Yeah. Okay. More than one. Concurrent? Two. 
three. What? <laughs> she had concurrent husbands. Lovers, partners. Yes. Okay. I mean, so like I like I said, so did her male contemporaries, but because she was a female, it was glaring for for the world. And not to mention her political views. This was deemed unacceptable by historians, and so she was pushed off to the side. Hmm. It's just a shame because, you know, 60 years later, people are just now coming around to A, accepting yeah. these views, whether it's on marriage or politics. But you have to wonder, like, why and how history shines a light on one artist and not the other. And you know who I'm going to talk about now. Talk Frida, about Frida, Frida Kahlo. Frida. She was an out and proud communist. She was bi- She's like a superstar now. Frida was a celebrity. She is a celebrity still. still. Even in her time, she was a celebrity. I don't think that wasn't Remedios's path. It, it feels like she liked to be in her studio working without the all the attention. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm speculating here, but... Yeah, I think... No, I think you're right. That being said, I could not find the dimensions for, for this work, uh, Disturbing Presence. Really? Nor where it's located. I don't know if it's in a museum... Or a private collection. An antique roadshow. Oh, my God. <laughs> An airport trash can. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> that would be so sad. However, I did find this photo of Remedios with the painting in the background. The so that's the, the only oh, there it is. reference I have for size. Yeah. That's actually a lot smaller than I thought it would be. Right. Because it's so detailed. You would think she would have been working right. on, on a larger piece. Oh, my God. And then look at that cat. That is an enormous cat. It is so cute. <laughs> okay. So imagine a big cat, like a large Maine Coon cat that takes up like an entire chair. A chair without a face in it. A chair you. without, well, maybe the face comes out from time to time. Uh, the cat is bigger than the painting. Okay. It's the perspective of the photo. I really don't think. <laughs> Maybe, actually. I also think a reason that we couldn't find the details for this painting were because a lot of the research that has been done on Varro uh, has been mostly in Spanish. She had only become recently prolific uh, before she passed away suddenly at 54. So her life That's was cut so short. so young. Yeah, but you know, in almost every photo I found of her, she's smoking. So I don't know. If that, I don't know. It's too bad, though. It's too bad. Stop smoking, everybody. Do you, uh... <laughs> do you... No, I don't want to get all conspiratorial here. What? Well, can what? We come a little closer, listeners. Do you think the uh, CIA offed her since she was an out and proud pinko commie? Oh, no. Three no, husband no. having cat owner? Woman? No. Mm? No. Mm? Mm? So real talk, Russell. Real talk. What do you think about this painting? I think if this piece was included with some of her other work, I think this piece could get lost because it's not as immediately attention grabbing as her other work. And folks, you know, we'll include a few of Varro's other works on our Instagram page. But I mean, check her out. Like she makes amazing work. The most intricate, beautifully detailed work. Th but this work wouldn't have stuck out to me immediately. It just wouldn't have. It doesn't have no, anything. It's, yeah. it's very like slow sort of deceptive piece you don't notice the the disturbing presence right away there's also some like really interesting things happening in the composition like just the fact that she allowed the canvas to shine through it, it creates this like interesting texture on the walls and then if you look at the floor there's this beautiful like trippy tile pattern happening on the on the floor it looks like the perspective's wrong <laughs> but when you look at it you realize she has layered up two different tile patterns on top of one another there's just all these beautiful like hidden things in this yeah right so for me the devil is in the details like you just said if you you look carefully you can see the the beautiful pattern on the desk and like russell mentioned the texture on the walls may have been unintentional but still it's beautiful it's easy to brush this work off. It's deceivingly simple looking. It, it It's easy to do that. You're just like, oh, there's just this chair just with a face. And then the figure is doing something on this table. It's, it looks simple at first glance. You, you really have to look at it. And that's okay. She was very influenced by El Greco. He was a 16th century painter, and he was very expressive for his time. He's been said to have been like a precursor to expressionism. She probably grew up knowing his works. She went Seeing to the, his works in museums in Spain, at, probably. At the Prado, yeah. The, she went to the Prado a lot as a, as a child. But another artist that she was also very influenced by was Hieronymus Bosch. 
his paintings are, I would say, fantastical, but also terrifying. I'm thinking of one in particular, mm. Garden of Earthly Delights. We will include that in our images. I'm sure most of you will know immediately what that is when you see it. As fantastical as they may seem, they seem like they're possible because of how detailed they are. The figures are exaggerated, but again, just because of how it's painted, you would believe you could see that down the street, which is terrifying. But. It's that magical realism that she was so into. I think in today's like visual language, you, you might have seen her making work on like an iPad, or you might have seen her making like comic books or illustrations for stories, or even like creating very detailed worlds that could be in a video game, for example. If you look at her work, if you look at each one of her paintings, it does have this very detailed, drawn-out, beautiful world. You're not just seeing one example of a feeling that she had or one example of, like, a moment in her life. She's creating this, like, enormous, fictitious universe, reality. Yeah. yeah, this universe, exactly. It's just so refreshing to see that as a painting. I'm, I'm not dissing any video games or comic books or illustrations or anything like that. I, I happen to love those too. I think what you're trying to say is that we just admire the time mm -hmm. and the craft that this took, or just painting in general. I admire that she stretched this canvas. She mixed the paint. She spent hours on the details by hand, right? Exactly. In the grand scheme of art history, right, oil painting is often linked to religious imagery. So the fact that she's painting this beautiful universe in oil paint almost gives it a religious presence because that time and effort to paint with oil paint mm. uh, affixes an extra intention to the work, right? So if you're taking the time and energy to use this expensive material, these pigments that have come from the earth to create this image because you think it's that important for people to see, it almost has that religious tie to like those El Greco paintings, for example. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a... That's great that you bring that up, that this would remind you of religious imagery mm -hmm. if it was like a different painter like El Greco. Because of how meticulous and detailed she's being in this medium, you would expect that. But she does have just as much imagery. We just don't know what it stands for. Right. Well, it's more occultic. Like the, the, the woman is glowing specifically in this painting. You would expect the Christ image to be glowing in another painting. Right, which but, is what makes it otherworldly. Yeah. It's like you you kind of see the same motifs, like mm -hmm. like a glowing figure, yeah. but it means something else, which is just, it's just fascinating. And there's just so much more uh, research to be done on her. Part of the reason why she's more open-minded, if you will, when it comes to religion is her dad encouraged her to explore other religions and faiths. Even though she went to Catholic school, her mom was very religious, but her dad was like, hey, there's more to the world than Catholicism <laughs> right. and go for it. You know, we're talking about how different and how witchy she was. She actually found two other artists to be very similar to her. There were a few other displaced surrealists with her in Mexico. And so the three of them were known as the three witches. So what, they just like hung out wearing all black, casting spells, like in the back of alleyways with their cats on their shoulders? Basically, not no, but like kind of yes. <laughs> we'll have to cover... The Three Witches. Oh, foreshadow. In a future episode. Wink. Wink, wink. There were three winks. You see what I did there? So, Steph, real talk. Critique dungeon time. We don't have a lot of time left. What are your thoughts? What are your final thoughts on this piece? I really like this piece. I would hang it in my house. I maybe wouldn't steal it. It is overshadowed, but I appreciate what it does to the viewer, which is it forces them to slow down and, and really look at the work because of its size. It's small. So you're going to get right up to it. Mm. And it's very detailed. So when you get up there, it's rewarding. You're rewarded for taking your time and really looking at it. Rewarded by being spooked and grossed out by the face of the little tongue sticking out. Yeah. You didn't just get in there for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good piece. It's not my favorite. I would absolutely go to other paintings of hers first, but in a series of work, I think it it adds to that universe we were talking about, that epic universe she's painting. She's just so good, technically right. speaking, at, it feels at like painting. A, it feels like a page in a, like a picture book. Well, even you like, know a what I mean? like a comic book. Or a like comic said, book, or, exactly. yeah, or a children's like storybook, a creepy, exactly. terrifying <laughs> horror book for children. You know, those horror books for children. To make, to make the children behave. Oh, like a cautionary tale. Yes, like cautionary a Hansel and tale. Gretel with a creepy like witch sort of thing. It's like, be careful. There may be disturbing presents popping out of there your... Might be a little tongue coming in. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't be uh, saying that to children. Cool. 
We hope you enjoyed this super special spooky Christmas episode that absolutely was never a Halloween episode that we just didn't release during Halloween and um, pushed on up to Christmas because we wouldn't do that to you. For all the images we talked about today, you can head on over to our Instagram at ArtSlicePod and go and give us a follow. If you have any questions or feedback, you can email us at ArtSlicePod at gmail.com. Folks, if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a positive review, a written positive review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform you use. All right, so I guess we'll see you next week. And no. And no. Your kid could not have painted that. Bye. Bye. Steph, did we ever hear from... Do, do we hear from the demon reindeer? Um. Oh, what's that? Uh, it says, happy spooky Christmas. Thanks for... With a four. Helping me get back to the <laughs> North Pole. And he... Send a picture of him and his demon reindeer family, which is about the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, God. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.